When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Yo, and welcome to the 88th episode of Lake of Rage Pokemon Trading Card Game Podcast. I'm your host, as always, Kevin Clementi, a.k.a. Mellow underscore Magikarp. I'm joined today by a very special temporary guest host. Joining us for the first time, we have the absolute legend of a player and content creator, Pablo Meza, a.k.a. Tablemon. Pablo, how are you doing today? Very well. Thank you, Kevin. Thank you for the invite. I'm very happy to be here. We're happy to have you. We've reached out and our schedules have never worked before. And this is the first time that it's, you know, stars have aligned. And I'm super excited to get to talk to you because I didn't warn you I was going to mention this part. But when I first started playing, you were the first competitive YouTuber. I found some JWIT stuff, but it was like super aged out. And I was like, I want the updated stuff. And I found the table on YouTube channel. And you were one of the very first people to help get me into the game. So I am so excited to get to talk to you. This is like, you know, this is meeting a legend, right? (laughs) Oh, wow. That, that's so kind of you to say that. That's always so nice to hear when, when people tell that to me, like that, that I was their first step into competitive. That's, that's the reason why I started the channel. So it makes me very happy. That's it's, I mean, gosh, I'm so many of our listeners have to be in the exact same boat as me too. So everyone be sure to tweet at Tablemon if you're in the same boat. Cause I know for a fact, like there's just so many good videos. The way you explain stuff has always been so good. And if you haven't checked out Tablemon's YouTube channel, you're really missing out but uh anyway that's not the point we're here right we're here to talk about you and you as a player you just got top eight at san diego regionals like so much stuff that we're going to get into we're going to do some rapid strike questions because the first time you've been here then we're going to talk about your history in the game then we're going to talk about casting laic as well you're not even just like a player and content creator but you're now an official caster and then we'll get into that lost zone ray deck that you got top eight at san diego regionals with so wrap start questions, you'll have 60 seconds to answer them. No explanation, just boom, straight off the head, like whatever you're thinking. Are All right. you ready to go? I am, yes. Awesome. Question number one, winter or summer? Winter. What's your favorite snack? M&M's. Who's your favorite Reggie? Gigas. What's your favorite deck ever? Nato Quinn. Would you rather be late to something or be early? Early. Uh, how do you like your steak cooked? Medium rare. What's the toppings on your perfect pizza? Uh, pineapple and ham and bacon. What color sleeves do you use? Whatever's on hand. <laughs> do you prefer cats or dogs? Dogs. Juniper, sycamore, oak, rowan, or magnolia? Oak. What was your favorite subject in school? Chemistry. What was your favorite IC location to go to? Melbourne. What food are you best at cooking? Quesadillas. What's your favorite holiday? Uh, Mexican Independence Day. (laughs) Do you prefer Mario Bros or Legend of Zelda? Mario. (laughs) And that is time. So we're going to get back to the favorite deck in the next section about your history, obviously. But why Gigas as your favorite Reggie? I get emotionally attached to the cards I do well with. So like, obviously, all the Reggies are good (laughs) in the deck, but (laughs) Gigas is the one that's like the feature one, right? So that's why. (laughs) That makes sense. So there's no like, oh, Drago's got the coolest design or Lucky's got the coolest design or like you're just like, well, it's a Gigas deck. So I love Gigas. Yeah, the the deck is known as Gigas. I definitely, um, I don't know, I enjoyed using Gigas, and the ability is the thing that makes the deck work, so that's why. <laughs> Did you play the, God, it was 2010, right? 2010 Gigas, or was that not your style back then? So back then, like, 
I'm sure, or I don't know if you remember, you know, I think like that was a promo gigas and that was hard to get. And especially in Mexico, like card distribution has changed so much throughout the years. Mm -hmm. And so getting promo gigas was literally impossible back then in Mexico. And back then there wasn't this incentive to travel and stuff. So like at that point I, I had traveled to, by 2010, I traveled to three regionals total, two in 2006 and one in 2007, I believe that's it. I only traveled Pokemon related to worlds. Okay, so yeah. when every time I play someone's retro and they've got Gigas, that's kind of a well. This is something you can do in the, you know, now that the, no one wants the cards anymore. But back then it was right. a little harder. Yeah, it, yeah, yeah, yeah. It was definitely very hard to get. Okay, uh, that's going to segue us nicely into the your history as a player. You've been playing for a ridiculously long time, <laughs> to the best of my knowledge. <laughs> I find out more specifically, but like. How long have you been playing and what are some of your accomplishments on the small chance that someone doesn't know all the stuff you've done? So how long have you been playing and what are some of those accomplishments? Um, so like competitively, I've been playing since day one, since Pokemon took over and they started uh, with city championships and stuff. That was back in 2003. Mm -hmm. um, I did start playing, I believe, like a couple years before that. Um, where there were tournaments in Mexico, but everything was like pretty unofficial. And there was like the unofficial Mexico national tournament, which um, which I got second at because of a a missed uh, a mistranslation or misinterpretation by the head judge at the tournament of how uh, Goldberry worked. So <laughs> that brings me back. Uh, but basically, like, I forgot to do it in between turns. And whilst my opponent, whilst I did, I was playing my turn, I was like, oh, I need to heal 40 damage from the gold berry. But then the my opponent stopped me and told me, like, no, that's, like, you didn't you didn't do it between turns, so now you can't do it. I was like, no, it's not optional, right? When there's more than four damage counters, I get to remove them. Mm -hmm. And the head charge ruled in uh, my opponent's favor. And that's why I lost the final <laughs> back then. Yeah. <laughs> That's so I don't know, because I didn't play back then was like judging and stuff like that. And like the judge program, was it not as intensive as it is now? Or did it just happen to be one miss, you know, misruling that happened? No, no. Yeah. Like that was like I said, that was before uh, Pokemon took over. So that was like like the judge program and everything was under Wizards of the Coast. And I, I was also a, like a 13 year old. So oh, yeah. <laughs> I, yeah, about anything about how it worked and things like that um but i mean that that head judge is is roundtree who's like oh. still part of the community he's well known yeah, yeah he, he's at all the events he's a high color promoter he just got that one wrong back then <laughs> and i will i still bug him about it <laughs> <laughs> yeah, i mean it's one of those things for judges right no one's perfect us as players certainly right. aren't perfect right of as course, in yeah, for, for getting a gold berry yeah you um, meant oh wait can i so this is a more lore that I don't know. How did you get to like team up with the X Files? Uh, okay, so um, like before uh, the first worlds in two thousand and four, mm -hmm. uh, when the circuit started and it was announced, like none of us had met each other in real life, but we all interacted a bunch on uh, the Pokéjin forums. And so, um, like I interacted a lot with uh, Magnetu, aka Mike Fouché. Mm -hmm. And um, like he was, he was a mean one. And also, uh, Grandma Joner, who uh, is also Sebastian Crema, who has recently made a comeback to the game. And I heard about Pijoro Trainer, but I never tested against him. And that's Ross Coffin. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And um, at Worlds 2004, that's when I met everyone. And then like that first Worlds is very special because that's when I was able to put a face to a username. Right, like back then, the internet was barely a thing, you know. Yeah. <laughs> and so, um, the first time I traveled outside of Mexico, the first time I I got to meet all these people that I would talk to all day, every day, and play against, and that made it really special. And I think, like since then, Mikey and I were uh, became friends. And then in two thousand and five, like Ross and I were in top four at Worlds. We were in different brackets, but there was, I believe, like one point where we were both where we both needed to wait. Like we all top four was waiting for something to happen or something. So we started talking um, and then we got along and then just over the years. And but I, I will say at one point, I I noticed that I needed a more serious group for testing mm -hmm. and I knew about them. And so I approached them about joining them and they had this big like meeting and uh, consultation about whether I would be a, a good asset or not. <laughs> and 
Uh, and then, like now, it's definitely way, way, way less serious than than it used to be. And most of the original members, um, like they barely play at all. Mm -hmm. um, but like, I feel like they're my friends, you know. So yeah. more than more than X Files, we're just friends, and we get along. And sometimes we talk Pokemon, sometimes we don't, and that's it. Yeah. <laughs> I've got two questions to stem off that. Uh, the first one, for anyone who doesn't know, this isn't a question, I guess it's a statement, but for anyone who doesn't know, X-Files are one of the very first, if not the first, like, major prominent, like, team group, team's not the right word, right? But, like, group in the game, or at least the one I've heard of, because I live in Seattle, so... I have a bunch of them around me, right? But it's one of the very right. first like prominent groups, and you mentioned a bunch of the names already. So it's like the current like, oh, you have Bradner's group, you have Limitless, you have Azul and Caleb and all them. And X Files, yeah. you were that at the time, right? Like you were this group that is dominated. The right word? Can I say dominated? So I mean, honestly, I think I want to say yes, but also like since the. Like right now, the game is very different to what it was back then. Yeah. Um, I'm sure they like maybe they were perceived as as that uh, in general, but I had very little interaction with any sort of US tournaments, and so I didn't know about the like the feeling at the tournament or anything like that. So um, maybe it felt that way. I'm sure you actually know more about it, but um, from my perspective in Mexico, nobody knew <laughs> about the X Files group. Literally nobody, and nobody knew I was a part of it either. Um, so yeah, it's just different perspectives. Like the game right now is so globally connected, as you mentioned, by all these groups, and mm -hmm. uh, I would add the Australians, right, and stuff like that. Um, so yeah, like right now it's completely different. Um, but I, I I couldn't even tell you if it was super recognized as the first team, the first dominant team, or not, because mm -hmm. I. Like I never attended U.S. Nationals, I never attended state championships and stuff like that. So I'm not entirely sure. <laughs> And then the second one is, how did, was it all through the Pokegym forums? Like, how did you test and talk with this group back in, you know, 04, 05? Like, how did that work? Because there was no PTCGO. I could be wrong on that one. But there was no online no. client, right? Yeah, there, there was no online official client. We used to use uh, an app called um, Apprentice, which was a magic-based, <laughs> um, a magic-based, uh, like, essentially tabletop simulator but with barely pixelated uh, <laughs> squares. Yeah. And then uh, someone would patch the the cards to make them Pokemon, but like you had to do everything, right? Like you would just drag the card in front and that's your active and then dragging the energies and you would just like uh, simulate playing uh, as you do now in Tabletop Simulator. And that's how we did it since 2003 all the way up until PTCGO, basically. How, was it similar to the Limitless one? Like the current, like, where it's like a exactly. very, yeah. okay, okay. Yeah, okay. That, that, that could be the equivalent, but like literally it was just a white square with a, a smaller white square and like a red <laughs> thing to signify it was a fire Pokemon or a water thing. that And then if you hovered over the card, then um, it would show you that, um, the text, but that was it. Yeah, like nothing special, nothing like... <laughs> It's super, super basic. It sounds like a true work of art. <laughs> we were to look back it at it. <laughs> it was, yeah. You also mentioned Nidoqueen as your favorite deck, and I feel like that's that next transition part. Why is there's you know, why is Nidoqueen your favorite deck, and what exactly is... Have you ever done a video on the deck? And I have, yeah. I, I, did, I did a video... During the pandemic, I started a, a series that didn't really take off, but... Um, called Table One History, and one of the videos is titled "How I Almost Won the World Championships in 2005." And um, yeah, Nidoqueen is my favorite deck. Like I said earlier, I get like very attached to decks that I do that I do well with, mm -hmm. and Nidoqueen historically is the deck that I've placed the highest at the highest uh, prestigious tournament. So that's that's part of why. But I also like. I vividly remember that summer, like I dedicated so many hours back then I was a high school student. So I was off for the summer and I would spend hours upon hours playing with, uh, Adam Capriola and Jeremy Marin, the, the guy that ended up winning the world championship, mm -hmm. um, for like hours and hours and hours and hours every single day. So it's like, I probably played more Pokemon that summer than the last two years combined. Or something. <laughs> like, it was crazy and a crazy amount of of pokemon that summer so can you kind of go watch the video if you want the full details you don't have to go through everything go check out the video but like can you walk us through why did you choose nidoqueen for that event and like when you say a lot of pokemon like 
how much is a lot of Pokemon just to give people an idea of what it took to get top four at Worlds. Like I was definitely playing at least six hours per day, Monday through Friday, like for sure. And we were testing, like we were putting Nidoqueen under every, under the worst possible circumstances, like mm-hmm. going second every single time because going first back then, just like today was <laughs> such a big advantage. Um, so going second against every single matchup that we could conceivably come up with, um, especially the bad matchups, which at the time were Executor Electrode and Dark Sloking, which ended up not being uh, popular at all, which was great. And mm-hmm. there were actually four of us playing the Nidoqueen deck at the tournament, another Mexican friend, which they agreed to share the deck with. And he's the one that ended up facing, I think, two Executor Electrodes and a Dark Sloking deck <laughs> at the tournament, and a Dark Steelix as well. So he ended up doing the worst because of the, of the matchups. Um, but yeah, I mean, how we came up with it. So it's also like a, a longish story, but, uh, at the time since 2004, um, and like the world's tournament was dominated by Japan. Uh, one of our friends, Adam Caprilla somehow got in touch with some of the Japanese players and they had their, their team, uh, at Chamo, which is tor- Japanese name for Torchic. Mm-hmm. And so it was team Torchic and they were also like, when Adam contacted them, they were also interested in like learning more about the uh, Western Western World metagame so that they could be more in tune with the next World Championships, right? And so we started exchanging like information and whatnot, and we would even debate what sort of information we would give them. Like we were mm-hmm. big on <laughs> on on sharing and not sharing because back then there were no videos, there were no articles, there yeah. was, there wasn't anything, right? <laughs> and so um, so we started um talking to them and then at some point they shared with us a list that had Nidoquin with Zapdos EX and Pokemon catchers and the idea behind the Pokemon catchers and the Zapdos was to take down your opponent's Pidgeot so that you would have the advantage back then like the advantage came to whoever had their Pidgeot first um or because then you could just search for any card you needed at any point yeah right? that was gonna be my fault this is quick like search Pidgeot we're talking about right yeah, okay, yeah, okay. quick search pitches, exactly. And so that was their strategy. But then, like, we didn't like the reliance on A, a Pokemon EX, and B, uh, the flippiness of Pokemon catchers. That was the only costing uh, card back then. <laughs> and um, it might not, no, it, it was called Pokemon Reversal, sorry, not Pokemon Catcher, but it's called the same effect, flip yeah. For, flip for Ghost, yeah. <laughs> and so um, we started tweaking with the deck, and Adam actually played the deck at. Uh, nationals that year in 2005 mm-hmm. and but he played a version that had lantern it was nidoquin pidgeot lantern lantern replacing the Zapdos to still have the threat against the the pidgeots but he ended up not doing um very well and he ended up losing to um what was the a rock rock lock oh yeah yeah, yeah. and so um he came back and he was like this deck has so much potential and I believe Puka also played a Nidoqueen deck at that Nationals as well. Mm-hmm. Uh, but Puka ended up dropping the concept. Uh, Adam was like, this has a lot of potential, but we need to figure this out. And then, like, after so much testing and so much iterations, we came to the 1-1 Milotic, especially since we could, like, in one turn, bench Feebas, played Rare Candy, and evolve into Milotic. Um, and, like, that got a lot of people... Uh, calling judges on us, like asking if it was possible, <laughs> and then it was possible, right? But that was the first time anyone was seeing it. And that Milotic completely changed the Rock Lock matchup. And then we were dominating Medicham EX, Maki EX, um, Rock Lock, Ludicolo, because we could one kill them, they couldn't one kill us. It, would, it just like it snowballed from there, and we realized we, we hit, we struck gold. So uh, real quick, the old rare candy ruling uh, you could use it on the first turn of Pokemon was played, but you could also use it into a stage one which is right, yeah. something, right? And then the second thing is, I don't, have no idea what my Lodic you're talking about. So uh, oh, really? what does it do? Yeah, it, uh, yeah. so that my Lodic, it has an ability called Healing Shower, I believe. Mm-hmm. And when you evolve it, you heal all damage from both players. Wait, that's broken. Like, that's, that's, that's just so broken. good. <laughs> yeah, it, it was, yeah. And so Rocklock obviously relied on spreading damage through uh, the abilities when you evolved or when you had basic Pokemon in between turns and then they had the spinning tail Tyranitar as well to spread damage. So then we would let the damage accumulate a little bit mm-hmm. and then we would just heal. And then we had weakness advantage against spinning tail and Dark Ampharos. And um, we had our our own uh, Pidgeot for their Pidgeot as well. We had a very thick Pidgeot line, which also had never been seen before. Mm-hmm. The 3-2-3, three, three, everyone was playing 2-1-2. Two, 
And so we could always out-muscle an opponent's Pidgeot line, and Pidgeot also resisted the uh, other Dark Tyranitar, the fighting Dark one. So like we like that healing completely changed everything. And if we needed, we also had a Brightness Compassion, which allowed you to pick up the, uh, any Pokemon from play and put it into your into your hand mm -hmm. with all cards attached to it. So if we wanted to, we could reuse my logic as well. That's so sick. This is like, just as a history lesson, there's so much involved in what you just described of that deck to learn about even current deck building, right? Like you talk about the thicker Pidgeot line. That sounds like every time we see Tord win with a, a boring deck, it's like, oh, he just plays a bunch of four ofs. You literally just described that with a Pidgeot, right? You're like, well, what if we just played <laughs> more outs to Pidgeot, right? Yeah, exactly. Turn one Pidgeot was so broken. Well, let's play more Pidgeots and more Pidgeots so we get it more often. It was that simple. Yeah. Right. That's just like, it's so logical, but it's also one of those things that we forget all the time. And then. Right. And it also synergized perfectly with Nidoquin's uh, Power Lariat attack, which did more damage the more evolved Pokemon you had. So it's like bigger Pidgeot instead of playing the Nidoking, which was the obvious partner <laughs> um, because it added the damage, but it didn't add to the consistency. So just like. People would ask us, like, hey, but how do you beat this? And I was just like, well, we get turn one pitcher and then we do whatever. <laughs> that was the answer. That was the answer to a lot of matchups. I mean, it is it is that easy, though, right? You're like, well, I can just search out any card I want. <laughs> like, turns out that's very good. Yeah, yeah. Pretty key. And then at least one other one. I don't know if you want to talk about it, but you went for Nidoqueen as your favorite Pokemon. Favorite, not favorite Pokemon, sorry. Favorite deck, not Greninja. Where, where does Greninja hold a place in your heart? Because this is another one you had a really good finish with, and one of the ones that I like I think of first for you, because that's more of my modern era, right? So why isn't Greninja that number one? Yeah. Uh, I mean, Greninja made me the, the last national champion, because national championships stopped being a thing afterwards. Mm -hmm. um, it definitely holds a very special place in my heart. And I will tell you, like, all of these decks that, I, that I've done well with, I try to keep... Uh, copies of and so i have a copy of nidoqueen i have a copy of greninja i have a copy of gardevoir gx original Zero cards GX. yeah the original cards yeah that's even better i love it <laughs> <laughs> and um so yeah i mean i would say like greninja and gardevoir are tied uh like for a second yeah like they've both been amazing and i feel like greninja definitely was part of like the beginning of tablemon Right, because like I haven't always been Tailmon. I used to be only Palomiza. Now I'm like Tailmon, the content creator, yeah. and like, tail, like Greninja definitely, um, definitely holds a very special place in my heart because it was like almost a year had gone by where I had started making videos, and I had like incredible support from the community, from everyone um, about like this competitive aspect, right? That you mentioned at the beginning, mm -hmm. and that's exactly what I was trying to bring to to the table that I couldn't see in other. Uh, Pokemon TCG YouTubers, this like competitive edge and what it takes to be like at the top, right? Mm -hmm. And so um, Greninja like culminated a perfect first year of incredible showings, uh, travel, and then Mexico national champion to to put the cherry on the cake. <laughs> so I'm um, like it's it's a tough one, but um, I I don't like. Greninja would be if I said Greninja number one, it would be more recency bias. It's definitely Nidoqueen. So off of Greninja, this deck, I was never the Greninja player. I My locals would have been all Greninja mirrors. So just no, right? I, you can't do that. I was never the Greninja player and always felt like this is one of the most inconsistent meta decks of all time. You just described, and you can disagree with me in a second, and which is fine, but you just described, we're going to play Nidoqueen with a thick Pidgeot line so we can search out anything to make this deck ridiculously consistent. And on the flip side one of the most successful decks you've ever played is Greninja. So why would you gravitate towards something that is notoriously inconsistent? So, I mean, I feel like if you go down to the like raw statistics and like, or so how the brain usually works, like you're more likely to remember when something you don't expect happens mm -hmm. because it's surprising, right? It, it makes a, a more, um, a bigger note in your brain than when the usual happens, right? So throughout the course of the tournament where I became national champion and I like I went undefeated with Greninja, like sure, I had a lot of situations where the deck didn't do um what it what it meant to do. Yeah. Right. But over the course of I believe it was like 14 rounds total, including top cut or whatever, like for the most part it did. 
you know, so I definitely distinctly remember the time when I priced two Frogadiers and the time where <laughs> I priced I priced one and my opponent got a KO and then I wasn't able to come back from that. But for the most part, like you knew also that that was part of the deck, right? And the deck was so inherently powerful that despite that, it still got results. It still did well, right? So I feel like there's definitely a lot of um, easy, like or rather unwarranted criticism towards the deck and like yes it is less consistent than a lot of other decks but that's how the raw power is balanced right of the deck so if it was super consistent and that powerful then it would have been greninja mirrors all day every day that's how <laughs> that's how it gets balanced and of course like after 20 years of playing i can tell you with 100 percent honesty you do need a little bit of luck to be on your side to get out a very deep run at a tournament yeah. so it was my day Awesome. There's again, I feel like everything when we talk about history, there's just more pieces of advice for modern day, right? You have Lugia as a good example of sometimes you get those, you're your theme deck, you play 202020. 20. <laughs> sometimes you get those exact same hands, but it's like, like you said, that's what I remember. I remember looking at four Aurora energies, two double turbos, and a Luminion start <laughs> versus the right, one where yeah. I got the double Archeops turn one, you know boss or sorry turn two boss ko on my opponents only v right so right. it's the the idea of hey you should also remember the good games and then compare the actual numbers of the two is exactly yeah being being objective taking a, an objective analysis and like a numbers analysis or data-based analysis because if you just go through the emotion and the frustration of oh this deck didn't work three games in a row this sucks right it's like no if you if you actually play like 15 games and in half of them it doesn't perform then fair right but you need a big enough sample size to really be like make assertions as this deck sucks or this deck is super inconsistent and stuff and sure it like you need the, the biggest challenge with Greninja was making sure you had the perfect balance between consistency and also utility right you can't just be all consistency and then you don't have enough options to adapt to different situations mm -hmm. um but like in my mind I felt like uh, Greninja did have those possibilities and um, just sometimes things went well and other times they didn't. So I want to also talk about something that more members of the community might know you for. I feel like everyone should know you for the YouTube channel. If not, check it out, like I said. But very recently, you were on one of the largest watched or most watched uh, streams that we've had so far. You were casting LAIC. And I know you've seen the feedback, but just from myself, you are arguably the best caster that we've had this entire season. Like I sometimes I watch the games and I'm like, eh, I can mute this and it's totally fine. You I wanted to hear what you had to say about the actual games. And it was your first time casting. How did you prepare for this to do such an outstanding job? Um. <laughs> Thank you so much, Kevin, for the kind words. Um, I'm blushing. Um, so, <laughs> so like in terms of preparation, like I made sure that um, I knew everything about Silver Tempest, right? And this is just like I feel like I didn't do anything extra that I don't already do for my videos, for my tournament preparation, and like I was in fact planning on playing. Like I had bought my plane ticket. I I was planning on registering mm -hmm. um, to LAC until they they asked me, and um, yeah, like what I do is take I I pay a lot of attention to the Japanese meta game. They get the cards before, so like it's it's like getting free information on on developments. Of course, lists end up looking different sometimes. A mm -hmm. lot of people don't like the the style of Japanese decks sometimes, and they also are mainly focusing on a best of one format, so that definitely adds to um, important distinctions sometimes. Um, to keep in mind when you look at their tournament results or things like that. But, um, I mean, I just knew everything that you needed to know about Lugia. I fully knew, like, what to expect from normal lists, right? And, of course, during the tournament, it helps that I had access to looking at the full list of the competitors. Mm -hmm. So that allowed me to make more, um, like, accurate comments on what to expect, what they could be planning um, during the, the casting. Yeah, and in the end, like I was definitely very, very nervous for it being my my first time. Um, like even TPCI told me, like, yeah, we usually like to to do 
um, new talent at regionals, right? Start them up there because there's less pressure. But you seem comfortable enough with the camera, so you'll <laughs> be fine. I was like, okay, <laughs> that works for me. I mean, um, you have a lot of years about talking into a camera, right? <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. I, that that definitely helped, right? Like it's it, it wasn't just like it was it was my first time of on an official Pokemon stream, but like it's seven years of content creation culminating into into that, right? And talking to the camera, analyzing, uh, speaking. Uh, fluidly at a certain pace, right? Not too fast, not too slow, mm -hmm. uh, trying to say interesting things. And I think the biggest challenge for me, uh, for LAC, was making sure that um, I had like good synergy with Kyle, right? Because like that was the first time ever that I was talking in front of the camera with someone else. Mm -hmm. Or well, I had done a few, a few, I had done it a few times uh, before unofficially or whatnot. But like that was like it was the pressure of the event and making sure that I said coherent things that could lead well into Kyle and making sure I was paying attention to the game and also to what Kyle was saying so that we're, there would be synergy uh, from him to me as well. So I think that was the the biggest challenge and that was something that I couldn't prepare for before because um, like we didn't have any time to to practice beforehand. We had uh, rehearsals the day before the tournament starts, but um, it was very little time. So yeah. So how long, how, how far in advance did you know that you were going to cast with Kyle and like, did you get any say, or they're like, okay, this is the duo. And you're like, okay, uh, now we have to figure this thing out. Like, how did that part? And if you can't say anything because of NDAs or whatever, that's fine too. But no, no I mean, I, I can say a little, um, I, I was contacted like, a a month before, mm -hmm. um, about LAC casting and um i didn't know what it would entail but i immediately accepted <laughs> i mean yeah um, of course <laughs> yeah and um i found out um like when when it was known between us that it was the group of the four of us casting mm -hmm. then we had a group chat and we were chatting on or not and they like obviously they were in the know a little bit more and they told me i think with like a week's notice that it was going to be um cal and me and chip and freya uh, but okay. like I mean, Kyle does his thing. He has a baby, does his thing during the week. I'm also busy doing other stuff. So we had no time to, it was honestly very improvised how we, how we ended up, um, doing the co-casting together. Yeah. Okay. Well, it ended up working out perfectly. So that's super awesome that, uh, you were able to yeah. mesh so effectively. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It, it felt, it felt very natural too. It felt very, and it, obviously I think it really helps that Kyle is like used to be a very top player used to always play at the very top level. So, um, yeah, there was a lot of, and like a lot of familiarity between us as well. I think that definitely influenced. One thing I super enjoyed, and I know I'm not the only one on this one is because of that part, right? Kyle used to be a top player. He clearly still does his homework. Kyle is a very yeah, good right. caster. He knows his stuff. So I do want to give a lot of respect to Kyle for that. But you two would also talk about like, cause sometimes downtime happens, right? You're like, okay, Mew's going to take 25 minutes to battle VIP pass twice, right? Like we have to fill this time <laughs> up. You would talk about old formats or you talk about history you know some of the stuff that you remember in the past comparing decks and it was like oh this is super cool to just like listen to right so that was a that the, the pairing was so perfect thank you thank you yeah I, I it was definitely very enjoyable i i really enjoyed uh doing it and i hope they'll call me call me back i hope so are you going for a top is it eight in Ladam? Now it's top 12 this is the first Ooh. time it used to be top eight. Now they, we were this, like, it was very surprising. We were the only, um, the only region that got an upgrade from top eight to top 12 this season. I mean, deservedly. Um, so there are more than eight top tier players in that yeah, region. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, so am I going for it? So my season didn't start too well. Um, I somehow beat Azul and Sam Chen at the, <laughs> at the London open and I missed points <laughs> still. That um, is ridiculous to hear. <laughs> what? Yeah, yeah, I, yeah. Coming off of seventeenth place <laughs> of, of Worlds, beating Azul and Sam, and then I somehow missed championship <laughs> points at the London Open, and then I didn't go to Baltimore, and then I I didn't do well in well, I got uh, top to fifty six in Peoria, um, but like I was out of day to contention mm -hmm. at, by round seven. Uh, then I lost a win and in at Salt Lake City. And I vowed to never play Palkia and Battle <laughs> VIP Pass again. I did play Battle VIP Pass. I broke that one. Palkia, I am never touching Palkia ever again. Um, Don't say never. No, we'll see what rotation least, gives until, us. Yeah. Yeah, at least until rotation. At least until rotation. Yes, that's fair. 
Um, and then I went to Texas and I lost back-to-back winning it. So it's been a very uh, frustrating season. And of course, I casted Brazil, right? I was planning on competing and I casted Brazil. So I missed championship points there. So uh, with the top eight this weekend, I'm sitting at 190, which puts me at 13th place right now uh, in Latin America. You're right there? Like, I feel like, yeah, I'm, I'm right there. Of course, there's still three ICs. Uh, I'm also not going to Oceana. Uh, because as a Mexican, I need a special visa that takes three months to to get, and because I definitely wasn't getting a stipend, it's just too expensive at two. Because the visa also costs like two hundred dollars, yeah. it was just too way too much work. Um, even though I love Australia and that's where I've I've had my biggest uh, IC finish, so I definitely want to go back, but it's tough. Um, and so like so far, I'm definitely planning on going to a UIC, mm-hmm. and I think after this weekend, I'm probably locked in for. I'm 100% locked in for a stipend, and because there doesn't seem to be any events this quarter in Latin America, I might actually just, like, there might be people with, like, 60 championship points that will get the travel award, Uh, like, depending on Orlando, or unless, like, the four players with travel awards from to Oceana from Latin America end up, like, super performing, Mm it would be really difficult for me not to get the, the travel award. To UIC and NAIC is so close. So, like as as of today, I'm definitely planning on on going for it. Um, I think first place in Latin America is definitely a little far off unless I I win an IC. But I think anywhere like I, like I'm happy. There's no difference between first place and 12th place, right? So if I end up being 12th place, that's completely fine by me. Yeah, getting I that think it's within reach. Getting that day two is the the goal, right? Like that's the God day yeah. day one. When's the last time you played a day one actually of Worlds? Or a grinder, so, maybe. So I played in the first day one worlds that they had, like when they did the day one day to split in mm-hmm. 2015. Um, I bubbled out of top card of nationals. I ID the last round and then I bubbled out. Oh um, no. <laughs> yeah, I got ninth. And so I played day one on, in 2015 and I made day two. And then every year after that, I've gotten a day two invite. I, I'm not sure. I think I might be the last player to. Who have played every single day two uh, since 2016. I'm not entirely sure. Oh, that would be an interesting stat to someone listen to this, figure that out, and then at us at Lake of Rage Pod on Twitter with the information because I'm curious now. <laughs> yeah, and like there's there's players obviously who would have made it if they were like seriously playing back then, but I'm I'm pretty sure I'm 99% sure that I'm the only player left that's made every day two at Worlds since they did the split. And I never played a grinder. I never played a grinder. You missed out on the fun. <laughs> I did, yeah. I did. I played one whole day of less of Pokemon than everyone else. Each time I went. <laughs> so you mentioned already that you did very well recently with Lasso and Rayquaza. This isn't the first time you've played it. Because if I remember correctly, you did play it at Salt Lake City, right? Or did I make that up? No, no at Salt Lake City, I played Paul. You just said, I, you literally I, just said that. <laughs> Yeah, I, I played it in Texas. There we right? go. So, yeah. So, I mean, I, I noticed Lost Box Rayquaza since it started doing well in Japan. Then I saw Adam Hawkins play it at LAIC and I casted, uh, I casted him twice, I believe. And both times I was very excited to see the Rayquaza and in neither match he ended up attacking at all with, uh, with Rayquaza once. Um, but like, since then, I was like, this deck has got to be uh, really powerful. But then, like... I will say that once I knew that I was casting LIC, um, like in terms of getting the reps in with decks, that's where I slacked off a little bit, mm-hmm. uh, knowing I, I had a chill time. I also didn't have, I didn't uh, buy all the cards that I needed from Silver Tempest immediately. Um, and so for Toronto, which was a weekend after and that I was playing at, I had the um, Charizard version built. Um, the day before the event on Friday, I bought the Rayquazas, but I didn't want to go into a tournament with zero reps with the deck at that point. It doesn't seem like a deck you can do that with. (laughs) I flew back from Brazil on Monday. I flew to Toronto on Thursday. And those two days were like filled with coaching and seeing my girlfriend and everything. So Mm -hmm. I had zero time to really prepare. So I went with the safe Lugia. I hated it. Um, (laughs) the deck felt inconsistent. Like if you ask me which deck is more consistent, Greninja or Lugia, I would say Greninja. So it's like, (laughs) after that experience, I I absolutely uh, hated that experience. I was like, no, okay. Now I have time, right? From now until Texas, Mm -hmm. now it's time to grind um, Rayquaza. And so I prepared Rayquaza for Texas. I felt really good uh, going into event. I was doing really well. And then somehow I managed to pair up against the two players playing Empoleon and in one round 
the person started Napoleon all three games. They played one out of 12 basics and they started Napoleon on all three games. I somehow managed to win, to win one, but like that completely, like, I don't know. And then in the last round, in my second win, and in my in game one, my opponent flips over Empoleon again. So it was four <laughs> games back to back where I had a turn one Empoleon. And then, yeah, it was, it was very frustrating. That's so like, yeah, like I feel like with that, um, I hit any other matchup or my opponent starts any other Pokemon, and then I'm definitely I would have made day two a Texas. So I was like, I just need to stick with this. And what I did change though, what I noticed was um in practice on PC Joe, etc., it's easy to figure out the prices, especially the energies. And I don't know, like since you're figuring out less stuff with regards to that information, it's easier to remember. Mm -hmm. But I could tell at Texas, I was making plays where I wasn't sure which energy to attach with right hand, or I wasn't 100% sure which energy to put back with Ordinary Rod um, at the time. So for the first time ever in 20 years of Pokemon, I start, I took notes at San Diego. That was going to be my question, because I had been practicing Kyogre, because I was originally going to go to San Diego on the you know, whatever didn't, but I was mm. practicing Kyogre at my locals and I was taking notes because I was like, this deck is so hard. So I was going to ask, did you take notes? And clearly, yes. And how much like anyone listening to this who plays Lost Zone Ray, are you like, you should 100% be taking notes if you're playing that deck? Is that like actually a massive difference? I I believe so. Yeah, um, especially like Knowing counts of Mirage Gates is important, knowing which attackers you have is, are important, but it's knowing exactly which energy are available to you between or where the energy are, right? Whether it's priced, mm -hmm. lost, lost zone, discard, or deck, that is huge because then you can um, make more efficient decisions with the ordinary rod, make sure your right hand is accurate every single time. Like, and I was still hesitant sometimes, <laughs> but, um, and I definitely made a, a few mistakes where I, just wrote down the wrong energy for some reason. I would I would grab it. I was like, hmm, I didn't write this down. That's right. <laughs> but, um, so I didn't do it perfectly. It was my first time. Yeah. But I I am a hundred percent sure I would not have made it that far without taking notes at least on the energy. But I was making sure I I tried to take note on on all the important pieces. Like I wouldn't figure out if I had a battle VIP pass price or a quick pull price. But I would always check the energy first, then the Pokemon, then the Colrest, then the Mirage Gate. Perfect. That was going to be my follow-up question. So I'm like, okay, now's when we're getting into the like the deep competitive stuff. I'm like, what is going to be the order of prize checking? And it sounds like that's exactly what it is, right? Like, and then anything else like scoop up nets and stuff like that. You're like, eh, I'll figure it out eventually. Yeah, exactly. The, the, the switching cards came after. Switching and recovery cards came after because um, also like I don't have five minutes, right, to check on the first search. <laughs> I don't. Uh, I don't so I've seen some stream games where it. people think they do. <laughs> Right, right. No, of course. I wanted to, I wanted to keep a, a good pace, but I also needed to make sure I had the information. And then in other searches, right, when I was using a quick ball or I was using a Mirage Gate, I would take the opportunity, since I had already figured which Pokemon or which energy I was going for, then I would take that opportunity to figure out if I if I knew that the escape rope was going to be big, then I would go ahead. Okay, I've used one. Let me make sure that I have two left or how many are left. Or scoop up nets. I need six again here. I need to use it a couple of times. Let's make sure I have access to that before I commit to that play and then go like, oh, <laughs> it's priced, right? Yeah. So I want to keep diving like deep into the deck. But before we do that, I do want to say if anyone wants to play Lasso and Rayquaza, you do offer coaching, correct? Like you're not I booked do. up. Where can people find that coaching in case they like everything that we're going to talk about and they want more about the deck or whatever for Orlando? So I have my MetaFi page uh, up and running at Tablemon, or I can also like you can DM me, message me on any of my social medias, and I'm happy to work out to work out a time. Perfect. So if you like these explanations or you want more, please reach out through MetaFi and get a coaching session. But uh, anyway, so you mentioned the price checking part already. I want to talk about, let's say you have a heavy ball in your opening hand. Are you going to automatically throw that thing down to prize check? Or are you going to like grip it and be like, I want to make sure that I have like, okay, heavy ball battle VIP pass. Are you going to battle VIP pass prize check and see if the heavy ball is worth playing? Or do you throw that thing down immediately? Uh, okay. So number one, I did play heavy ball myself in the list, but oh, I should have looked at your I list. Were, <laughs> it's okay. If I were, I would definitely play the heavy ball first because I think there's also another important factor into like unless I within my hand I needed to like figure out a card to quick ball away for it, then maybe I would do it differently. Yeah. But in 99% of the time I would heavy ball first because knowing the prices and just being able to look at them and write them down, 
I do feel like tournament exhaustion is is a thing, right? And so it's much easier to just look at them, write them down, and then that's settled, right? Mm -hmm. You have that perfect information. Whereas if you play the Battle of the IP Pass and then you go through your deck, it's like it's investing time and energy that could be spent figuring out how you're going to win, right? Rather than figuring out your prices. So then I definitely think there would there's a lot of value in as long as you don't need an excess card to quick ball away or to chromatic or whatever deck you're playing. Um, I would always play that heavy ball first, uh, just to give myself that. Okay, I have this 100% accurate information, and now I'll go look through my deck and make sure I just get whatever I need because now I know exactly what I have access to and what I don't have access to yet. I also want to talk about a couple matchups. Thank you for that, by the way. Yeah, yeah. But uh, I'll talk about a couple matchups because yesterday I played an online tournament for a couple rounds and then it was bedtime, right? But uh, I played DTE Mew into a Rayquaza. And I quickballed away my Oracorio because I'm like, I don't want to bench this thing because they're gonna they're gonna KO it with Raikou or Sableye or whatever. And my opponent sent the shocked face. So I wanna know, <laughs> A, is Mew supposed to bench the Oracorio? Yes, absolutely. Oh, oops. <laughs> and B, <laughs> from your side of the things, the Rayquaza side, are you it sounds like then you're not just going Oko Oko to Mew V Maxis, right? What is the prize mapping actually kind of, it depends obviously, right? But like what does a typical game look like for Loss Own Ray into double turbo Mew? Oh, well, I mean, so the Oricorio is what changed like it forces more resources into the plan of two KO of one KO Mew and Mew and then you win. Mm -hmm. So like the deck is all about uh, resources, right? And especially with flower selecting, sometimes you end up losing a valuable resource because the two cards are so good and you need to prioritize one over the other. But like the the easier it is to one KO MUV max, the better. With Oricorio, then you either need uh, six second drop mm -hmm. uh, plus four energies, or you need to do 400 damage with five different uh, type of energies. So then without the Oricorio, you're making me sure there's no target available for me there, but you're also requiring less energy and less uh, extension from me to be able to KO a Mew. And even to the point where I can also just go right hand, one energy Mirage Gate to more and then attach from hand. So that only uses up one Mirage Gate rather than two. So then the Oricorio helps that math. Yeah, I think you gain more from the benefit of that extra protection because the more cards your opponent needs to respond to your attacker, then the less likely it is that it will happen, mm -hmm. right? So if you combine that, like if you have the record down and you have a judge, then the response is a lot more difficult. Whereas um, if you don't have that Oricorio, then basically it might come down to like one right hand can get you there, right? Because the deck plays so many energies that just one right hand finding the Mirage Kid, which is a hard card, and then you're there already. So if your opponent, so from the Rayquaza side, if your opponent benches the Oricorio, you have to deal with if if I'm interpreting this correctly, you have to deal with the Oracorio first before you can Rayquaza stuff most of the time, right? Not not necessarily. Okay. Like if they have the Oricorio, then it just it makes harder for you to knock out the Mew. So if you don't have the knockout on the Mew, then you'll have to readapt and perhaps choose to use Raikou that turn to damage the Mew and then eliminate the Oricorio, right? But then that's one turn where I didn't KO the Mew. Right now I'm essentially two hit KOing the Mew, which mm -hmm. is uh, the big uh, the big idea behind the recording, making it harder for them to go down. And then that's an extra attack from you. And then it also opens up potential like, okay, this is fully healed. Maybe there's a Psychic Leap play uh, somewhere with double power tablets. And then you eliminate the Raikou, you eliminate the resources that I've already had to invest, whether it's a Raihan or a Mirage Kid or something, less options for Rayquaza. And then now I still have to figure out a way to one KO the next Mew completely clean. How far you're mentioning a lot about resources, which is like anyone who's played Lost Zone decks is probably like, well, duh, right? But how far in advance, like, is it turn two, turn three? You look at your opponent's board state, you look at your board state in your hand, and you already have an idea of like, okay, I need to mirage gate this thing to this, and then I'm gonna need to rod, and then I'm gonna need to double mirage gate to this. Like, how far in advance are you like, here is the general game plan I have to go? Or are you kind of like, I have to reevaluate every single turn because the deck just has so much variance in comb fees and chorus and stuff like that? The, yeah, the answer is you have to basically reevaluate after every every flower selecting. And that's why Oranguru is like one of the most key key cards in the deck because it helps you like it turns a, a Colres from four resources to I mean from three resources to four mm -hmm. a lot of the time. It can turn Comfy into two extra cards rather than just one. And it can also make sure that you 
get to Colrith or Raihan or save like that one difficult card to get, then you get to save that one for uh, the following turn. So Rangaroo is super key. But yeah, like there are plenty of times where you're trying to plan and then the flyer selecting sees two Mirage Gates and they're like, well, I guess it's time <laughs> to reevaluate. And that's where having the double Sableye is a big difference because Sableye is definitely a big, um, it's like the opposite of Rayquaza. It's such a good uh, cost-effective card. Uh, because mm -hmm. you're going to get to 10 cards anyways most of the time, and it sets up, uh, like, if you can take a small KO here and there and then set up the damage counters for the rest, like, attacking once with Sableye can be as good as playing Tumor. It can save you one or two Mirage Gates sometimes, or the right hand and stuff. So um, within that plan, you, you also want to make sure that you're contemplating how you kind of make your attacking more efficient through the use of Raikou's bench, bench damage and Sableye's damage, uh, damage placement. So you mentioned the double Sableye. You had double Raikou, Raikou double Rayquaza, double Cramorant? Double Cramorant and double Sableye, yeah. So you didn't play Heavy Ball, but you played two of every Pokemon. Are those two related, or are you playing double two of every Pokemon because you're like, well, the Pokemon are really good, or are you playing it to negate your flower selectings hurting you? Like, where's that level of, why did you play two of every Pokemon? <laughs> was it to not prize them? Was it so you could get rid of them whenever you want? Or was it to actually like, use them twice in certain matchups? So um, in a lot of matchups, you do end up using um, both like both copies, um, like against big things. Just having two Rayquazas means you have more leniency when one is prized. You have more leniency if you are forced to loss on one. Mm -hmm. But especially like you're not relying as much on finding an ordinary rod into a quick ball into finding the Rayquaza. So there's so many pieces that you need in order to pull off a big Rayquaza or sometimes to pull off like the Raikou or the Sable or whatnot, that the like just having that extra actual copy rather than uh, being, I guess, greedy, if you will, and playing the heavy ball and less copies of some of the attackers, like heavy ball is not an easy card to find, right? The only way to directly search for it is through right hand. Otherwise, you just have to hope that you find it. As opposed to, like, if you have two Rayquazas and one is gone, then you can just Quick Ball for the other, right? And you have four copies of Quick Ball. Mm -hmm. So the the idea behind it is, like, it gives you more leniency when loss zoning any copy. It reduces the chances that uh, you won't have access to one because you priced it. And even though you could make it, like, you could cut some corners with the Heavy Balls, there are a lot of matches where just double Sableye won me games. Double Raikou beats Regigigas. Double Rayquaza beats all the big, um, the big decks. So it's everywhere. And Cramorant, you probably don't need two Cramorants in most games, mm -hmm. but you do want to be able to find it early, and you won't always have Battle VIP pass, right? And you also have to factor in that, like, you want Durangaru to protect your call risk for your next hand. You want to set up Greninja to draw extra cards. You want to set up Comfy. And in a lot of matchups, like every time I face against Lugia this weekend, I immediately bench the mana fee because. Connor won with Stoutland and Raikou, and you cannot afford uh, two two price turns uh, for Lugia. You can afford one, and you need to immediately respond on the Stoutland, but you cannot afford. And that's why one of my losses in Texas was because I, I was on the opposite. Like, I figured, no, oh, no one's playing Stoutland and Raikou, and then they ended up doing that in one game, and that's what cost me the round, right? So with this, now with the trend of Raikou and Stoutland, or at least with the last big tournament winner playing both, I always, like, blindly, I would just bench the, the mana fee to have that extra layer of protection. So there's so much, like, pressure on your resources to find basic Pokemon that just having an extra copy means you'll find it earlier naturally, or you can just search for it without having to rely on recovering it, right? Because if you have to recover it, then you need the recovery card and a quick ball to search for it as well. Is bench space ever, I mean, it obviously bench space can be an issue with literally every deck in the format, but assuming you're playing a general with brain cells is bench space an issue or is benching the mana fee like eh, it's kind of whatever i'm always going to have an empty space and now it's just filled with the mana fee no no it can it can definitely bench management is very important for for the deck you also want to sometimes like preemptively bench uh like the Rayquaza or the Raikou, even if you're not going to use them mm -hmm. um i always try to say like out of sight out of mind so if they haven't seen any metal energies or they haven't seen the Raikou, then they might not prepare for it, right? But sometimes it's just more worth it for you, especially protecting against Marty. Because mm -hmm. then with the two copies, it's easier to be like, okay, if I bench the Raikou or the Rayquaza now, if they go boss KO it, then I get to keep my hand, right? Which is like six, seven cards, Mirage Gates, and I have a Quick Bolt to go fetch the other one. But if I don't bench it and then they Marty me, then I need to 
find the Rayquaza and all these other cards. So then, like, you could call it boss baiting yeah. in the sense that, like, when, when they play the boss, then they're not doing Marnie or Judge. So then you're completely fine uh, by that. But bench management, super, super important, especially in matchups where you need to protect the especially in Lost Box mirror matches or against Regis, where you need to protect the bench with Mana Fee. You want Durango to protect against Marnie, um, the heavy Marnie with Regis. And um, you also need enough to Lost Zone, and you need six second pinks as well to matter. So that's when it gets uh, the trickiest. So when I first started playing, I got coaching, not from you for everyone listening, but from another player, right? Which is why I always recommend coaching to anyone trying to step up their game, because as a new player, it took me from I'm playing Pokemon, right? Like I'm watching good players play and learning to like, oh, I'm like very competent at this game. But anyway, uh, one of the things my coach said was one of the things you want to think about is making the play that makes your opponent the most uncomfortable like at all times. And is that kind of what you're leaning towards here with like, I'm going to bench the Rayquaza or whatever preemptively, because now you're going to freak out about that and my eight card hand and you're nodding your head. Yes. Yeah, so I'll let you go ahead. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. That's, that's definitely, I don't phrase it that way. What I say is like, always aim for the best and mm -hmm. the, like the best possible play that I could make always aim for that one. And also when considering what your opponent could do, prepare for the absolute worst, right? Prepare to the fact that they could get every single perfectly card uh, that they could want, because then if you prepare for the worst, then that's okay because you prepared for it. But if you if you prepare for the worst and it didn't happen, then you're probably even better off, right? Yeah. So yeah, like that, that sort of play of preemptively benching the Rayquaza or the Raikou, even though it gives them the information that you play the card, and then they'll know exactly what version of Lost Box you're playing. Like, you gain more, right? You gain more from keeping your seven-card hand that already has one Rash Gate and another Cold Risk mm -hmm. versus um, not showing their Rayquaza so that maybe they don't expect it, and then you just lose their Rayquaza and everything else to a silly Marty. And the last little bit on Lost Zone Ray that I want to get into is, and this is cool because as a content creator, I know that you've actually looked at the next set. Like, you're you're ready to go. You've seen Crown Zenith, right? Yeah, absolutely. Perfect. Do you have your top 10 cards video out yet? I do not know. <laughs> I've been a little slow on, on content creation lately because I've a lot is going on in my personal life, but it should be up soon. I mean, you've been top eight in regionals. You got you're you're busy doing stuff, right? <laughs> but uh so check check that out. Or if you want Pablo's full thoughts on you know, Crown Zenith, but you've looked at the set, you're kind of aware of it. Orlando's coming up soon. Do you think Lost Owner Quaza's in a good spot? Does the deck like have to make drastic changes? Or do you think like, oh, maybe we should look at other Lost Zone variants a little bit more? Like, how are you kind of thinking the deck's going to be sitting into the uh, uh, Orlando meta? You know, we're a month out. So this is a very early prediction. Right. So I do think Lost Zone Rayquaza, like it's still going to be a, an extremely viable option, mostly because like it has everything it needs to deal with big uh, rule box Pokemon, two prizers or three prizers in Rayquaza, and it has all the tools in the Raikou, Aggression, and Sableye and Sixagoon to deal with single prizers. Mm -hmm. Now, the the big thing about this deck is that it's only single prizers, and now we get the Sky Seal Stone, right? Which grants you that V Star that gets you an extra prize if your basic V knocks out. So I do think that that's such a good card that I'm not sure the deck can miss out on. And I feel like that card will make other versions of Lost Box, like combining Samazenta and Kyogre and uh, Galarian Sapdos, mm -hmm. uh, Raikou V, things like that. I feel like we're going to see more mixing of um, single prizers with Vs. But like Rayquaza already trades very favorably against the Vs, right? So adding something like a Galarian Sapdos or a Raikou to take an extra prize against a Lugia deck or a Draven, like against a Mew, when uh, you're also offering an extra prize doesn't make a lot of sense. So I feel like other Lost Box variants will get stronger mm -hmm. uh, with Crown Zenith, but I don't think uh, Rayquaza gains much from it, um, except perhaps the new Zamazenta as, as an alternate big hitter, since you're already playing um, Metal Energies. Like I could see a copy sneaking in, in there. Um, to do like that little bit of extra damage. The ability is nice as well to reduce damage. But outside of that, I don't think the deck will be will be changed. I just think the other loss zone variants will be uh, a bigger percentage of the of the loss zone spread of the meta game. And I'm gonna say last question, but I don't know. Stuff always comes into my mind. Mm -hmm. Vikavolt just won. So 
Is there any tech for Vcable, even if you don't want to leak it, right? You're like, no, 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 I got the tech and I'm not going to tell anyone, but you're like, it exists. Or is there any tech or is it just like, it's not worth teching for Vcable, take the L and beat literally everything else in the field? Right. So even though Vcable got second at Texas and just won, I don't think that's a deck that's very like appealing to the masses and also not an easy deck to pick up, mm -hmm. right? So I don't think it will be like representative in terms of percentage in the metagame of course it's a threat and of course it will be played by top players um and you have to factor it in but i generally think like a couple extra copies of um raihan can like one or two like even maxim out, maxing out the raihan could be good an extra copy could be good mm -hmm. um and i really feel like because obviously their damage output is um if you're under item lock then it's 60 right 70 with gun pings that were not they won't always have the scoop of net um so comfy survive here and there but like you can also just patch the rayquaza attach a lightning to it mm -hmm. and then if you have a, a grass somewhere because you've managed to bench the radiant greninja discarded like you're one right hand away from just knocking out the vehicle cramorant is also like if they don't have the Samtos, like back-to-back cramorant -back attacks knocks out the vehicle so i definitely think you have enough play um against a deck without making any big modifications but if it's really really like a big problem I could see a uh, Galarian Zapdos uh, fitting into the deck. And if I'm going to start, like, if I'm going to add the Galarian Zapdos, then I would definitely make space for at least a Galarian Zapdos, Aluminium, mm -hmm. and the Skyfield Stone to have access to that. Like, Luminion just adds to the consistency. Most games that I ended up losing were because I didn't find Colrus early, so then Luminion fixes that. And the Skyfield Stone is just such a good card. So that would be, like, if, if Beakable, I generally have not tested enough against Beakable to feel comfortable in the in the matchup and i could see myself adding the color and Saptos, but i don't think the metagame spread of orlando would warrant it that way we're looking at what i think like 15 1600 people probably yeah <laughs> you're probably not going to hit the eight vikavolt players in the room or you might you right. might literally hit every vikavolt yeah. player <laughs> true yeah yeah you might and that's that's the thing a lot about a tournament like sometimes you don't know whether you made the right call or not until after the tournament right after you've seen the parents after you've seen the metagame so a lot of it has also to do with intuition pablo thank you so much for joining us if the people want more from you where can they find you or any shout outs you have thank you i mean shout out to all the sponsors that help me do what i do on a daily basis shout out to you kevin thank you so much for having me and table one yeah table one in every social media you can imagine that's how you can find me <laughs> And myself, uh, be sure to check us out. We now have a Twitter uh, at Lake of Rage Pod, so be sure to follow that. And then myself, you can find me on Twitch, Twitter, and YouTube at Mellow underscore Magikarp. We are now back to weekly uploads after I took my break of Just Like You, Pablo. I played Lugia in Toronto, and it definitely did stuff. And so I needed a break, but we're back now. We're back playing Pokemon, and we will be back with another episode next week.